For those that want more in-depth influencer and social media content, today is your day. We got to dive in with Summer, the VP of Global Marketing at Two Faced, who helped build that brand into a $1.5 billion acquisition, primarily via influencers, on every tactic she's used over the last 10 years. Remember, if you enjoyed today's show, be a friend, tell a friend, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone. Enjoy the show. Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. All right, welcome to Earned, everybody. Today, we are going to learn from one of the top marketing executives in the world, particularly when it comes to social media, as well as hyper growth. I think you went through a growth phase that very few people get to experience. Um, welcome to the show, Summer. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Super excited to kind of, you know, hopefully share any knowledge that I've picked up along the way and just have some fun. I mean, you have experiences when it comes to social media that people will definitely be envious of, number one, and number two, that I think we can learn a lot from. Um, and for those that don't know Summer, so Summer is currently the VP of Global Marketing at Two Faced. She's been at Two Faced, so her journey is kind of the best part. So you've been there for nine and a half years. I think when you started, how how big was the company? Gosh, you know, we we probably had like thirty employees or something around there. Yeah, I think yeah. you have a few more than thirty employees now. Yeah, yeah, um, so, now, yeah. <laughs> so from when you started in 2012 to the acquisition by Estee Lauder, you guys get up to 260 million in net sales. So that's not even gross sales, net sales. Um, and we're a $1.4 billion acquisition, which was the largest acquisition Estee Lauder had ever made. And I think you had really done that primarily via your influencer and social strategy. Like that was really critical to the growth of the company. And then since then, obviously you've led them from a marketing perspective and are a mainstay in our kind of top 10 uh, makeup brands by EMV. So congrats on the last decade. It is an unbelievable uh, set of achievements. Um, and I'm excited, excited to dive in. Thank you. And one thing I will say is it's, you know, influencer marketing is one thing, social media is one thing, but it all starts with great product. And, yes. you know, that really makes our jobs a lot easier. Um, so when you have great products that people want to use that influencers want to talk about, um, it, it kind of all starts from there. So I'm very lucky to have Jared, who creates the most incredible products, kind of leading the helm there. And that definitely makes uh, my job a lot easier. So can't, yeah, can't go on without saying that. All the time, right? Like if you want somebody to write an article about you in a magazine historically, right? Part of it is you have a relationship with the editor of the magazine, but the other part of it is you have to have something worth writing about, right? You have exactly. to have a product that is worth talking about. And so, uh, yeah, that's awesome. And especially when you want, you know, your conversations on social and you want the interactions you're having with influencers to be authentic, it has to be products that they want to use. They're excited mm -hmm. to use. They're excited to show off to their fans. So um, that that definitely is a huge part of the, the winning recipe. Well, talk to me about that a little bit, because I think one of the things we've observed is that getting the influencers involved in the product creation process can actually be really, really high leverage as well, right? Because they try every product in the market, they know what works, they know what doesn't. If they really like it, they can, you know, they will be more attached to it if they had some contribution or feedback to it. Do you guys get them involved at all in the like product feedback process? Um, or is that something that you guys don't really do? Yeah, you know, well, we do a lot of collabs and when we do that, it's yeah. super in the kitchen with Jared. 
Um, and I think that, you know, what we do really well is that our team and Jared has a really great relationship with influencers and with creators. So they're, you know, going out to lunch, they're meeting, they're chatting on the phone, they're texting. So they're hearing that feedback directly. And at the end of the day, to your point, these people are like the ultimate beauty junkie, the ultimate consumer, right? They've tried every single brow product on the market, every single mascara on the market. And what I love is when you can have those honest conversations with them, like, what do you love about this product? What would, do you wish was a little bit different? Like what, what really sets it apart? And when you're listening to those nuggets and you're getting that feedback, you're able to kind of use that to help determine, you know, how do you want to shift your marketing strategy, your benefit communication strategy? How do you want to use that information to share with the consumer? Because you have such an incredible opportunity to hear from these people that literally are like the like core DNA of what a, um, like a beauty consumer is all about. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about those collabs. Cause I feel like that has been such a core part of your strategy and your success. When did those start? Like what was the first time? Cause you've been there since probably before they were happening. When was like the first collaboration the first like light bulb moment of wow, when we work with these people to co-create products, it can be. Yeah. You know, really we, um, and when we do these things, it is not like some big reverse engineer, fitting it into some product pipeline. Like we're going to do two of these a year or once every quarter. It's, it's nothing like that. It's truly authentic. And I, I, you know, sometimes that word can be overused. You'll probably hear me say it like 10 times, you know, during this session, but it's, (laughs) it's just the truth. Like there's not a better word for it. I mean, it's literally like you're chatting with someone, you're meeting them and Jared, who heads up, you know, product and all things product. And he gets a connection with the person. He goes from there. I mean, I remember we worked with um, Vegas Nay. Naomi, who was this, you know, and still is this incredible talent, but she really, truly had this really unique perspective on makeup, on how she wore makeup, on how she talked about makeup. And um, Jared and her kind of hit it off and they were in the kitchen like, let's, you know, let's do a palette tiller, let's do a collaboration together. And I think that is what makes the most successful collaborations, right? Is when there's already mm-hmm. that authentic friendship. Um, that you can build off of, or that authentic mutual respect, um, love of each other's craft, of love of what each other is doing. And you're trying to get together and make something, you know, even more special. Well, and those are all long-term relationships as well, right? Like that's, I think one of the, you know, one of the other things that people miss is like, oh, I'm just going to find a celebrity and we'll create a product together. And it's like, like, I don't know how long you knew Vegas Nay, but he didn't meet her that day. Right. Yeah. Years, years. And we're still, you know, we're still friends, you know, and I, I think that that is where the magic is. So when, you know, you have new brands or if you have someone who wants to create a brand, that's something that's really important that you take into mind is who is going to be the face of your brand or who are you going to partner with? It's, it's not this, you know, um, scientific algorithm or, you know, something that can be contrived in a boardroom. It really mm-hmm. um, comes down to, and because, you know, consumers can totally sniff that out, right? It comes down to creating magic, creating something special together and bringing two unique, different people with different perspectives, personalities, you know, past experiences um, and bringing them together to birth something new. Um, otherwise, you know, a branch should just keep staying in its lane and doing the same thing it's always doing, right? And these are the kind of surprise and delights for the consumer that I think really get them excited too. Well, and I think the advantage that you guys had in those early stages, as well as one that you've maintained, 
is that I think that's really intimidating, particularly for a brand that either has been around for a long time, has a lot of heritage or hasn't done it before, right? So for Clinique to go out and do that would be, you know, it'd be a bigger lift than for you guys to do it when you were just kind of up and coming and getting started. Um, so yeah, it's, it was, uh, you guys are way ahead of your time on that one. It's, it's, uh, and then, oh. Oh, I was just gonna say, I, th I think Connor, you know, anyone can do it. It comes down to the people, right? Mm -hmm, and the mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. are what make the difference. So whether you have a heritage brand, an indie brand, a big brand, a small brand, who are the people working there? Because it's not the, like the brand, the brand essentially is, you know, it's not a, a obviously like a real life breathing human, right? So at the end of the day, people <laughs> yeah. want to work with people and um, your brand also has to be like great and cool and have cool products and everything we've talked about. But, um, you know, it's hiring the right people who then can be that, you know, first connection with the brand and build those relationships. And that's why, I mean, I feel it's so important for brands to have like in-house influencer relations managers, in-house social people. You know, you can work with agency, sure. Um, and there's a lot of great agencies out there, um, but you're just never going to create that that connection. And it's always is going to be a big sticking point to taking to the next level. Yeah. How do you, I mean, that's one of the bigger struggles that a lot of our brands are working through is like, I spent all this time building this internal team who goes out and builds relationships. And then those relationships kind of leave with them. Right. And so obviously you've been there for a long time. Jared's been there for a long time. So that continuity is really valuable, but how do you, what, what do you, would have been your tactics to try and make sure that you can keep your own internal talent around? Mm -hmm. um, and then when somebody does leave, how do you ensure there's kind of continuity? So few answers. Great question. Um, <laughs> one, you know, one of the things, um, one part of it is people are going to leave, right? Because yeah. especially this is a newer career field for a lot of people. I mean, nine years ago, that wasn't a job, right? Being an influence relations manager. Now kids aspire to that. Like that's, there's, you know, degrees out there, right? You can get in social media. So we have to understand that as this is new and as this whole space is evolving and this is evolving as a career, people are going to leave and they are going to go to other brands and they should, they should, because they should go where growth is. They should go where they should spread their wings. I know again, like such an overused, you know, cliche, but it's true. And <laughs> yeah. the thing that I have to do is make sure like I'm a great enough leader that when they leave, they still want to interact. They still want to connect because the industry is so small that when your you know employee does leave when your influence relations manager does leave and go somewhere else there's they are going to take a lot of relationships but you know what they're going to do is they're going to say oh yeah i love two-faced they're such a great brand when they're talking to the influencer yes oh that's so great they offered you a deal you should do it right versus oh stay away like that is not a brand they were so wrong to me they were you know they treated me poorly that's going to carry with you probably more than any other like department within an organization, these are your calling cards. These are your people. And, mm -hmm. you know, generally speaking, you know, I, I think when people leave the influencer relations team and they go off and they, you know, spread their wings and they go to other brands, like I've still kept in contact. I still talk to them multiple times a week. I'm still their references for jobs. Right. So, yeah. um, I think that's really important. I think the other thing is 
you know, you have to build a deep enough bench, so to speak. You have to mm. have enough people on your team where it's not everything's riding on one person. So if one person leaves, yep. you're stuck in your back at square one. Um, and I know it seems pretty obvious, right? And then the third thing is, you know, you as a leader have to also roll up your sleeves and have your head in the game. And, yep. you know, a lot of times it can become easy, I think, for leaders to go and be so kind of disassociated with like the day-to-day workings of mm-hmm. a brand or of an organization. And they're kind of in their corner office, door closed, like head in the weeds in some Excel spreadsheet. That you've got to make the time to actually be the ones in meetings, involved, strategizing, talking to influencers still, meeting with influencers still. And that doesn't mean um, micromanaging your team. It's very different. Yeah. What it means is like truly being a leader and a mentor for your team um, and having that seat at the table with them. I think that answer is like awesome. Like we need to like oh, package yeah. that for other people. Cause like, at least for me, it very much connected. I think when it comes to the kind of in the weed stuff, that was something that Steve on our board pushed really heavily. And I kind of made the same mistake, which was, you know, we, this is maybe three years ago or something. And our team is really ambitious and driven and, and I wasn't doing a very good job of, um, so I would meet with clients and I wouldn't do a good job of following up and letting them know what was talked about. And so there was some friction there Mm -hmm. and then they're ambitious. So they want to own these really cool client relationships. And so they were pushing and I was like, okay, I was like, I'll stop talking to clients. Like you guys handle it. I want to trust you. You go and do it. It was like the biggest mistake I ever made. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, maybe I can't remember how long later, it was like a year later, six months later, I was like, this is, this is broken. Like I've got to talk to clients. I have to be there. Um, And Steve was on our board, pushed that really heavily. He's a CFO. He's sold, you know, I don't know, half dozen SaaS companies for several billion dollars combined, whatever. And he's like, you just can't, he's like, you have to stay in the weeds. Yes. Like, yes, you have to plan, but you have to stay there or you lose touch. And so I went out and did, I think it was like 60 face-to-face client meetings over the next three months, like in person, in LA, in New York, in San Francisco. And it was just like, it was transformational, right? Like I learned so much, it helped direct the business. So anyways, I'm aligned there. And then obviously on the deep bench, 100%. And then the first one on the like, how you treat this one person is going to impact like how the rest of that community interacts with you. I have a brand that I know, and it's one of the top 10 brands in uh, the category that has, you know, developed a really bad reputation amongst those managers, right? Of not treating them very well. And it's like having pretty negative effects, right? And they kind of underestimate how much that spreads, right? And how much, how, how, you know, how difficult it makes it to get the next great person as well. It does. It's the Kevin Bacon six degree of separation idea, right? And in beauty, I feel like it's like two degrees of separation. So, (laughs) you know, you really, and, and, and it just goes back to just being a good person. So like, it's, it's not even trying to be contrived of like, I really hope that people, you know, speak well of me. No. And that's going to help the brand yet. That's just like a great, like added benefit of that, you know? Yeah. And Yeah. And you know, the other thing I would say in terms of like being in the weeds, something that's really helped me is, and anyone who knows me knows that this is so, so important. And I think a really key to our success is, you know, when we were all in the office and living our best lives, you know, back a couple of years ago, um, I had two desks. I have like the office with a closed door Mm -hmm. and for like those, you know, 
personal meetings that I need to have with people that I'm in maybe like, I don't know, 10 minutes, like every couple days. Um, yeah. my real desk that I do my work at is like in the middle, the, the, the seat right next to the team. It is in the weeds. And the person that taught me that was Jared, who has also this beautiful designed office, right? That he never sits in. He drops off his bag in the morning and he would leave. And he sat like in the middle, like a chair right next to everyone with his product development team and his, you know, his head graphic designer. And the, the stories you're hearing, the banter in the morning, the water cooler talk, the um, just, you know, what people care about. That is like so key to be in the weeds of people where they're seeing you as their leader, right? Like yeah. getting in with them, rolling up your sleeves, building those relationships. And that's really important. And I think a lot of leaders have this like false sense of like, oh, when I've made it and I get my office and I get to, you know, and I'm going to stay in there and, and invite people into my office and to sit down across from me from a desk. And like, that is not how you build teams that want to work for you. It just isn't like, yes, you have to have a closed door to, to have certain conversations when you get to a level, but like go out there and, you know, and get in with them. And obviously now that, you know, most people are virtual and how do you, how do you do that in a virtual sense? Well, you just join them to riff. And sometimes, you know, I don't, I just call them, right? Like pick up the phone. Yeah. How are you doing? Don't get into just, you know, barking orders and, and telling people what to do. Like, just ask them, how are you doing? Call casually. Yeah. And if they're busy and I always tell people like, don't feel like you have to pick up for me. I'm just literally calling you. Cause I'm coming back from school drop-off. I wanted to see how you were doing and check in, you know? So that was a long winded answer, but no, I love it. I think those drive-bys are super valuable, right? Yes. And you read about them. I mean, it's funny because intuitively it makes sense, but like, if you really, if you study like management consulting, management, you know, uh, whatever, like that's a big part of it, right? Like walking the line, talking to people, hearing about what's going yes. on. Um, while we're on the topic of that, you know, what are some of the other, you know, leadership philosophies or approaches that you've found that work really well, right? You know, are there any others that you think are really kind of critical? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the, the keys to our success and it kind of what I've over the years, anytime we've stopped doing this is when you see problems is I think mm. you have to make bold decisions and make them quickly. And mm. a lot of times, you know, I've seen people where they have this kind of like analysis paralysis or they're like just paralyzed of making the wrong decision and what that's going to mean. Right. And of course, yeah. if you're going to fail, fail quickly and cheaply and have an aha moment from it. But at the end of the day, you know, there's nothing more like wanting to work for someone who can make like big decisions and make them quickly so the team can execute. It's so deflating, I think, for a team when they are working for someone who is like, well, hemming and hawing, maybe we'll do this campaign. Maybe we won't send me three more decks, send me two more Excel files. Let's talk about it in two months because they kind of maybe feel like their head's going to be on a platter if something goes horribly wrong. And yeah. I think the minute you can like lose that fear as a leader, that if you do make a mistake, that you're not going to be like skewered, you know, for it, that it's going to be okay is the minute you can start to like really make big changes and make big campaigns that people, you know, want to hear about and that your team wants to work for people like that, that are making big things, just doing the day in and day out. That's, that's just earning a paycheck, right? And yeah. people can earn a paycheck anywhere. And especially, you know, on the West coast, there is just so many incredible indie brands and there's so many incredible brands that people want to work for. So 
you know, you have to offer more than a paycheck for people to want to work for you. And so I think that's important. The other thing I think is just being a great mentor for someone's career where someone like truly feels like they're learning from you. There is growth there if there isn't growth at a company, because also sometimes they're just, I mean, I understand like reality. Sometimes mm-hmm. there just isn't a position that someone can move into. There just isn't money in the budget for another, you know, big promotion or adjustment or whatever it may be. Sometimes there's realities of business, unfortunately. And when that happens, like how can you be a mentor for that person's career and help them get to that next level at another brand? Right? Yep. Yeah, it's uh I don't know. I mean, it's like the things that you're saying are things that like when you hear them, it's like, well, yeah, of course you should be doing that, but so many people don't do it, you know? And like and it's so hard to actually do in practice when like you're in the grind day to day. It is. Uh, it is. You have to get yourself out of like the wheel, like that's just spinning, the hamster wheel yeah, and and yeah. to make the big change. And you just kind of have to change your mindset of like, and I think people, when, when they meet, when they talk to me, I hope they can feel that mindset of like, yeah, I'm just going to do things that I think are the right decisions and I'm going to make the big moves and I'm not going to, you know, be watching my back and afraid that, you know, if, if I do make wrong move, cause I will, cause that yeah. happens and you make, because when you're making bold ideas and, and bold campaigns and they're not all going to be successes, right? And I think some people find it easier just to kind of like hide, like, you know, like don't pop their head out, just kind of hide over here and and get the paycheck. Like, I don't want to live my career like that. And especially going into 10 years at a brand, um, I don't want to live like that. Right. It's, 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 that's not what's going to get me out of bed for sure. Yeah. Toto and uh, Corey. So Toto at Benefit and Corey at uh, Elf both talked about similar things, right? I think Toto said he expects 75% of his content to fail, right? That they put out. Like, it's like, I expect 75% of what we put out to not hit, right? And then Corey is really big on big and fast decision-making on those mm-hmm. things. Um, speaking of which, I was meeting with a team member of yours in London, and we came up with a great idea. I don't know if it's filtered up to you yet, but I think it should. So uh, have you... Okay, so she here. So what I'm gonna pitch it to you live, right? Because yes. I think it's a great, great yes. idea. So the idea is well, what she was telling me was that the two-faced products have done really well um, with people that have vision impairment, right? Mm-hmm. Because the product packaging is very tactile mm-hmm. and it has a scent to mm-hmm. it, right? So you can really quickly figure out like what products you're using and you know, uh, etc. And so as she was talking, I was sitting there and going. You know, if I could not see, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to put on makeup, right? Like that sounds like an incredibly difficult process. And so I was sitting there, I Googled like how many people are visually impaired, severely visually impaired. And it's like really high. I don't remember the exact number, but it's like 250 million people globally. It's like a really, really high number, right? And so um, the thing that I was like, I was like, you guys need to really like capture this, right? Like, and you can do it in so many ways because like you can imagine, okay, bringing in somebody who is an influencer or creator who is blind or can't see very well um, and having them do like a Spotify or a, you know, Apple podcast series. I'm like, here's how you do this look. This is how you can tell, right? And then having customer support agents that you can dial in or FaceTime and be like, hey, how does it look, right? Like there's a whole series around it. I love it. I think you guys can capture. I love it. No, and we have heard that because- Scent is a strong part of the brand 
and because yep. how we create products is so much about the packaging, right? Not just exactly. the formula. So we have her that. I love the idea. I love it. Yes. I think it's a huge market. I mean, again, yeah. you know, and like, and I would imagine, I don't know anybody else that's serving it and your products already kind of fit into that narrative. So you're really using your customer's feedback and embracing that, right? And it's authentic. So, um, Going back to how many times have I said, or should, we, should this be a drinking game? How many times Summers has authentic? <laughs> you take a drink? Yeah. I mean, I think I just made you $50 million. At yeah. Least. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I will. <laughs> yes. The, the box of chocolates is in the mail. So let's talk about kind of the last couple of years, right? So, you know, obviously any products you were putting on your face or that you're putting on to go out and do events and experiences are going to be things that had, um, you know, were impacted during this time, yeah. right? Now, what I've also heard at the same time is that makeup has really rebounded, particularly in the second half of 2021. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious if that is what you're seeing as well. Right? Is that something you're starting to see? Um, and then second, if there are, you know, what are the pockets of growth? Like what are the areas of opportunity that you're seeing within your own portfolio as a brand as like, hey, this is, this is really emerging and doing well right now? So yes, I am seeing that. I mean, for us, yep. when you think about the last 10, 15 years in beauty, there's always going to be a spotlight on fragrance one year, right? Or skincare mm -hmm. another year. Then it goes to hair and color. Like everyone kind of has their their turn in the spotlight. Um, yep. Obviously, uh, you know, in the last few years when everyone's wearing masks, it's been a lot more difficult for color cosmetics. But yep. surprisingly, like some of our, our best selling products, products that have been booming, are products that I think, you know, you wouldn't think would be. So for example, lip injection, which is this plumping lip gloss, right? Mm -hmm. It has been soaring and doing incredible. So that franchise, that SKU has been around for, I mean, probably 12 years. So the surprising thing is it's a lip product, right? You're wearing masks and it's an older product. It's not something new. Why? Like why the success? And a few reasons. One is it took off on TikTok. It totally went mm. viral on TikTok. Um, Two is it's efficacious. It really works. And so I yep. think that, you know, just that demonstrable beauty of like with that incredible before and after lends itself to social media, lends itself to products going viral. And then almost, I think because it was a skew that had been around and it was a hero product for some people who already knew it and were using it for other people that were learning about it and discovering it for the first time. Um, that conversation, like that organic conversation between those people on social was super interesting to watch. And I think also kind of helped propelled it. And when people were maybe a little bit more careful with buying new products and where they were spending their money, because they're like, well, you know, I have a lot of makeup and I'm, yep. you know, I'm not going out as much. Do I really need to buy makeup for someone to spend their money on a product? It's like they almost, I I feel like this is just, you know, summer speaking. I don't know if there's any data on this out there. <laughs> anyway, this is what I'm seeing on social. I feel, <laughs> it's just a gut feeling. I feel like, you know, people were like, if I'm going to spend my money, I need to think this is really going to work. Like I need to actually believe mm -hmm. in this product. And so for some brands who could really capitalize, if they had really strong hero products, if they could really capitalize on that confidence in those products and I think that was just, you know, for us, it was kind of like a very kismet thing that happened because we had this product that really worked, that people could trust, they knew worked. Um, and then kind of introducing that to a new consumer, a new generation, um, it's just totally taken off. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm, that's awesome to hear, number one. Number two, you talk about TikTok there, and that's something that we're, I mean, 
it's been the you know topic of the day for a year, but it feels like it just keeps picking up momentum. Um, what are you? What are the tactics that you found that work there? Right, like, and what maybe what's different about TikTok for you in terms of engaging in it as a brand versus say Instagram or YouTube or any of the others? So huge. I'm in like a huge champion of TikTok. Um, yep. It is the platform that we are like our number one focused. Um, we were the first beauty brand in America to advertise on the platform. So we are like Whoa. super ingrained from the beginning. We have been right. like with TikTok. So um, for us, it's supernatural, right? Like we've been doing it now for a few years. We're not yep. like new. And I, I haven't, what's interesting is I haven't really changed a lot in terms of strategy from like the earlier, the earlier that we were on it to now, I think mm -hmm. how we view TikTok differently than like an Instagram, for example, is really that sense of, and I think this is why creators love being on TikTok is like anyone could go viral at any minute. And so mm. even less important than like on an Instagram looking at, well, how many followers do they have and what's their engagement? Because that's a moment in time right now, right? Versus on mm -hmm. TikTok, like that could change tomorrow, right? They, it could be someone that's getting 3 million views on a video today because that, that video went viral and maybe their next content doesn't hit the same or vice versa. Today they're getting, you know, a couple views and tomorrow their content hits viral. So when I'm thinking about, you know, who are we working with on TikTok? Who should we be working with? It's really, truly based on like, what is their content and what does that serve us as a brand? It's so much less about then, you know, how many followers they have, like, what are their videos getting? What are their views getting? It's like, what is our reason for needing the content? And then how are they serving that purpose? Yeah, the, it sounds really stressful as a creator to have like, I mean, like, you know, totally. it's like, if you're not set, sending your best shot, like it's not going to hit, right? Like. I know. It sounds because there's such a the discrepancy is just so or discrepancy the just the difference between like their best video and their worst video is like dramatic. A hundred percent. No, the, to your point, yes, the stress, and that's why I think if for us it is so much more about like because you just I mean you're playing roulette at that point, right? Like yeah. generally speaking, so it it is more about like why do I need this piece of content? Why am I going to pair it up with this product? Why do I want to work with this creator? And I, I really view them as creators. Like we don't speak to them. We don't speak about them as influencers. It's truly yep. creators, um, which I think is a lot different than how we work with other platforms. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the movement generally happening, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'd be curious, you know, while we're on that topic though, you know, you were really, and Two-Faced was one of like the pioneers. And I don't use that word lightly. Right. Like you guys were like the earliest of the earliest of the earliest. I think Nix was maybe the only one that was a little bit earlier than you. And even then you guys were kind of doing it at the same time. Um, you know, what were some of the the tactics? Well, I want to talk, I don't want to talk tactics or philosophies. Let's talk philosophy first, tactics second. So philosophically, what is your approach to influencer marketing, right? What are the core philosophies that you think drive a successful program and have driven you guys to be so successful over the last, you know, seven, eight years of doing it? I think it's, I mean, it's a lot of things. I would say the top three are one, I'm like dying that I'm saying this right now, but authenticity, but okay, well, let me explain. 
let me explain. Um, what I mean by that is like actually, you know, when you're working with someone, it's not based off of a number in an Excel spreadsheet and it's not based off of, you know, okay, well, who's going to earn me the highest EMV? Who's going to, you know, um, who is like the, the it influencer of the moment, right? That's not a way to build a longstanding strategy, right? Mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm. to really go back to like, why do I, again, why do I need this content? What am I using this content for, right? So second is respect. Um, I think it's a super, this is, okay, this is, this might be controversial. This is just me personally. I think it's an outdated philosophy to not pay influencers and pay creators. Mm-hmm. It's a job, okay? You were okay paying your models, your photographers, your makeup artists, you know, to do a campaign for you and then to use that image in your marketing, why wouldn't you be okay with paying someone to use their content in your marketing? And let's all be honest, you're regramming it or you're using it in your advertising. So I think it's outdated. I think there has to be a mutual respect for people that mm-hmm. this is their job, this is their livelihood, or if it's not their day job, you know, they're hoping it's future or it's their side gig. I don't care. It's the yeah. hustle. I, I don't care. So I think that respect really truly has to be there. And it doesn't mean that we can pay everyone. It doesn't mean that every single person we interact with is, is, is being paid as a creator. Right. But it it does mean that, you know, you do have to understand that if this is someone's job, that, you know, that has to be a part of it. So I think when, you know, when I hear people saying, well, we don't pay influencers and look how great we are as if that's like a positive, I think it's outdated. I think that's something that maybe if like four or five, six years ago was happening more in the industry, but like today, Mm -hmm. Um, right now, that's, it's just not a long-term strategy, I think. And then the third thing I would say is like, you're not the smartest person in the room. You just aren't. So especially when it comes to social media. So any leader out there that thinks they are because they went to a nice fancy school um, or they've been in the industry for fill in the blank number of years, it actually means nothing in influencer relations because, you know, the kid you hire that's 20 probably knows more than you. Um, because they grew up on the platform, they're using the platform, they're spending three hours every night on the platform, right? And what is that? Like Malcolm Gladwell says you have to do 10,000 hours to be an expert at something. Well, that adds up really easy when you're on TikTok, you know, a couple hours Eight each hours night. That, that, <laughs> that adds up really quickly. So, you know, if you're if you're a leader that's not on the platforms, not using the platforms, um, you know, you have to really respect the team that you've created and you've hired and for the decision to make, sometimes they bring me ideas and I'm like, I don't get it, but okay, let's do it. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. So well, you, so much of it is like inside jokes. It is. Community, it's you know. so true. The inside joke. And like, you're not, if you don't know it, you're not part of it. It doesn't mean that it's not funny and it's not cool and it's not happening out there. Right. So don't just assume because you don't get it. That doesn't mean that it's not a good idea. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I haven't, because I'm not leading any of those social teams, I don't have odd things presented to me like that, but I can only imagine yes. some of the things that come across your desk. You're like, huh, not. Yeah. I'm like, okay, it. let's try yeah. it. <laughs> um, so one of the things I think is really fascinating about TikTok um, is, and this is, it kind of already exists on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Which is kind of the brand as a person, right? Like as a personality, um, in written format. And you see this really commonly in TikTok videos, right? Where there'll be a video and in the comments, you'll see brands responding. And it's yes. like, it can be really ironic. Those are my favorite to read. 
Yeah. I I love those. Have you guys started trying to do that? And if you do, how do you balance that? Because some of this stuff gets pretty edgy, right? Like some of these comments are like, man, that person has a lot of leeway within this company to like go that direction. And it's like, and it works, but it's got to be a little scary. Have you guys started yes. testing that out at all? We ha- we have, you know, what I would say is I think it kind of like, remember kind of Twitter a few years ago, it was always like the fast food companies that did this so well, yes, like, like the Burger Wendy's Kings and- of the world and like Wendy's and all those. I mean, just so funny. And yep. humor is a big part of TikTok. You have to have a sense of humor, but yes, as a brand, you can't, you know, cross a line. Um, but what I would say is the hard thing is finding those and not being late to the game. Right. Cause mm. there's, unless you're going to be self-deprecating and be like, yeah, we're late. Like, you know, we just got here, but you have to really be like at that beginning when people are doing that. And it's not something that can be manufactured. Right. And that goes back to having a team who's just organically on the channel. So like a lot of times when we've been able to catch on fire on these trends as are happening, it's been when we already have team members that are just on social, they're they're on TikTok that night, you know, on their own personal TikToks and they see it and like, this is super cool. Like when I'm at work tomorrow, like let's get in there, let's engage. And yeah. it's not like you can like enter in something in the, you know, in the algorithm and try to find it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But those are actually like, as a consumer, those are my favorite ones to read. And people have been so clever they really, they have been like really, really clever. So yeah, we've got to start like some sort of Instagram account that captures all of those because there are some like social media managers out there that are like doing God's work. Like it is hilarious. I mean, they're like borderline comedians, like yeah. some of them. It's like yeah. really entertaining and they yeah. really take on that brand persona in a way yeah. that like works, right? Um, okay, so I've got one more kind of tactical influencer marketing question. And then we're going to do a fun end of show question um, that I'm actually, I'm really interested to hear your answer. So um, tactically, right? So when you first got started, I I will never forget. I got all of the two-faced boxes. I remember getting one that had a screen in it that had a video that played when you opened it, all that kind of stuff. And I'm really curious because you have visibility into how those tactics have changed over time, right? Um, and I'd love to know, you know, today, when you think about your own kind of tactics when it comes to influencer marketing, are you sending out boxes? If so, like how many are you sending out? Do you participate with like BoxyCharm or Ipsy mm-hmm. or any of those kinds of programs? Are you doing, you're still doing paid collaborations? Are you doing affiliate marketing? Like what are the different components? And then what do you think is kind of becoming more important over time and less important over time? Great question. I think, uh, yes, we, first of all, we're still doing everything. (laughs) Yeah. We're still doing everything, but it's, how is it pivoted? Right. And a lot of it has changed just in the last, you know, two years, right. During this pandemic, what I would say is BoxyCharm and Ipsy, and we've been with subscription box companies for many years are a super important part of a brand reaching consumers because sampling, right. Getting product Mm -hmm. in people's hands and sometimes sampling through a retailer, might be difficult for a brand, whether it's like cost or having units, or maybe the retailer isn't as interested in the product that the brand has to sample, right? Um, a, a place like BoxyCharm or like Ipsy or any of these other subscription boxes, 
I think it can be easier for a brand to sample through that vehicle and can get it in the hands of the people that want to try it. There's a lot of data that comes out of it if you're interested in that sort of thing. There's um, a lot of like add-on things that they can do and they're working with influencers, et cetera. So I, I do love those channels. I think they're great. I think that using those channels in new and different ways is going to be the key to success in 2022. And I won't say what you know, we're doing, but we do have a very exciting different way that we're going to be partnering with um, one of these subscription boxes. You have to see it'll come out in um, a couple months. So that'd be one thing. Second you can, you thing. We can talk about it now. It's just us. Yeah, yeah. We don't need to. Yeah, it's catch okay. me on Twitter. Um, <laughs> the second thing I would say is, you know, in terms of boxes and, you know, I remember we were like sending out fridges, you know, at one point. Yeah, you guys so went all out. <laughs> I think that the thing is you still have to get product in people's hands, um, influencers' hands, creators' hands. So, um, but we all have to have a much better mindset in terms of sustainability, right? And mm -hmm. just thinking also as a human being, if I was a creator, do I want 500 boxes showing up at my door? No. Going back to respect thing, you know, figuring out ways of having influencers or creators opt in to get, you know, these boxes. Do they want this product, right? Yeah. Um, making yeah. sure that um, you're really, really giving people products that they're actually going to use or if they're not going to use them. So like, I personally think gone are the days where a brand should be sending someone 35 shades of a foundation just to prove a point that they created a range of 35 shades. How can we do that in a way where, you know, someone is going to be able to use the product um, that's, mm -hmm. you know, right for them so that they can then talk about the product and then also know, yes, you have this great breath, right? So for example, one of the things we do is, um, if an influencer or creator isn't quite sure of their shade, we give them the shade that we think they are maybe one shade up, one shade, you know, down. Um, and then, or mm. we can send them, Hey, let's do a live virtual, you know, shade matching with you, but sending someone 35 shades, unless they're a makeup artist and they're going to use that with clients. Yep. And that's a different story. You just can't really do that as a brand. And for a while, that was kind of what everyone was doing, right? Just overloaded people. I remember yeah. Nick's. I remember Nick sent 50 pounds of product to like a thousand influencers. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, <laughs> like, and that's and and because that's kind of what everyone was doing. And I, did, I right? and I hope the and I, I have seen I've seen some big changes from the industry and and shifting and because it's just the right thing to do. And no one wants, first of all, it's a waste of money, but second of all, it's just no one wants to be throwing away, you know, 34 out of the 35 shades. Yep. Yep. It just feels wasteful. It does. It does. Yeah. And then are you guys doing, do you guys do any kind of affiliate marketing? Do you play in that space or you've kind of stayed out of that generally? We do like our e-commerce um, team mm -hmm. definitely does a little bit more of the affiliate marketing. I think sometimes it can be hard because when you start thinking about, um, I'll just like use this for just like a, an example, right? Hypothetically yeah. speaking, if you're giving someone a code and you're like, you know, Sam 10. And okay, and Sam's going to, you know, give that to his, you know, people or he's going to embed a link and then depending on those number of people that purchased from that link or using that code, Sam is going to get X number of dollars. What tends to happen what I've seen is maybe it's not that high of a number that comes in or not this purchase and all of a sudden that means well don't work with Sam. Sam can't sell yeah. product. That's really not looking at it in the way that you should. It's very that's very um like a spreadsheet readers, yep. you know, point of view. Right. And they're really not in the weeds and you really don't understand the nuances of influencer marketing and building, you know, a social media strategy, if that's how you look at it. So I tend to stay out 
of of yeah. that sort of world because I think it can can tend to go that way. And we really like to look at where your consumers engaged with product, right? Or no, with the product, with yeah. the um, with the content. You know, did you? Um, was it content that was so cool that then we could use it on our channels or we could use it in our paid advertising, right? Because if I'm looking at from that exact post, how much should that person sell? Well, you yourself know as a consumer, if I see someone posting, I'm not that second buying it, right? I no, may have to see it no. a few times. Maybe see a few times from that same person. Maybe you see a few times from people in my you know, ecosystem, like my social media ecosystem, people I follow. Oh, that person's using it. That person's using it. Or maybe it's, I see it once on there. I'm out shopping a week later. Yeah, I remember. I remember Sam was talking about that. Like, I'm going to pick that up. So we all know as consumers, that's not how we shop. So why do we expect to see the same results when a creator and influencer talks about product? Yeah, it's, you're really, like you said, I think it can actually cause, because then people who are less sophisticated in the, um, you know, in this particular area of marketing or marketing in general, yes. see that and go, oh, well, that's not worth the money, right? Like, yes. let's not do that. And it's like, no, yes. no, no, no. You're like, you're looking at the tip of the iceberg here in terms of the impact this thing Exactly. And, and I'm playing the long game, right? Like, I'm not... Yep. I'm not trying to, you know, meet a specific budget goal for that Friday week. And so I better go send this out to 500 people in affiliate code and, and hope I bring in money. But like, that's the short game. Like, I'm hoping yeah. that this brand is in existence for a very long time and has like a very healthy life. And so when you're looking at it from that point of view, I think you're making different decisions. Well, and frankly, I think it actually taints the content a little bit. It right? does, It taints yeah. the recommendation a little bit. Like, it does. It's just not the same. Okay. All right. Let's do one fun end of show question. So, you know, we were at dinner in LA a little yes, bit ago. Yes, yes, right? yes. Big celebration dinner for tribe sale, whatever. And um, and we started talking about wine. Yes, and yes. So you're very into wine. So yes, I'd yes. like for, and you're, so this is why it's going to be hard for you is, I'd love to know if there was one winery you would send mm -hmm. people to, what mm -hmm. would it be? And this forces you to yes. not choose a lot of other wineries. I know. I so will tell you. the one you recommend? But I don't think, I don't know. I don't know if they can handle everyone calling them from my recommendation. But <laughs> I, I will say one of my favorite wineries is a winery called Nine Sons. Okay. It is owned or, or it's owned by an incredible family, but it's, it's run by the most amazing couple. And so, you know, my first career was a journalist. I love storytelling. I love people's backgrounds. And um, like, that's what, why I love wine. And I, I love when people tell me like their family business and how they got into it. And their dad was a farmer. And like, I just love it all. And, yeah. you know, and then other people like the science. That's what's so cool about wine is there's like science and stories. And these people just have an incredible story. They are such a unique um, couple and changed careers. The property is amazing. It's on Pritchard Hill, which is like one of the most amazing, um, you know, pieces of land in in the Napa area for wine. And the wine's really good. So that's what I would say. Nine Sons. S-U-N-S. I'm in. I'm going. Um, well, Summer, I really appreciate you taking out the time today. Um, I know I learned a lot. It was fun to get to ask all those questions and congrats again on everything that you've accomplished over the last nine plus years. It's, uh, it's, uh, not surprising what's happened, but it's also super, super impressive. Thank you so much. I had a ton of fun. This is a passion, you know, I'm super passionate about this topic. So anytime I get a chance to talk about it, um, it's fun for me. So thank you for having me. Of course. All right. Bye, Summer. Bye. Hit subscribe now.
earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at TribeDynamics.com. TribeDynamics.com.